Hello, I'm Ron. And I'm Liz. And welcome to I Forgot to Tell You Something, the podcast here to give you hugs and sometimes help when life and ADHD collide. All right, so ADHDers report more sexual desire and more sexual dysfunction than the general population. Having ADHD may make it more difficult to foster and sustain intimate relationships, impulsivity, novelty seeking, forgetfulness, emotional regulation problems, rapid mood changes, hypersexuality, hyposexuality, resentment. All these things can have a huge impact on our relationships. So yeah, that's the reality. And on this podcast, we talk a lot about excuse versus explanation. And so that's the explanation. And Unfortunately, the explanation can turn into excuse when we ignore it or avoid it. And that's just the truth of it. Taking that explanation and coming up with ways to improve it, working on ways to build bridges, overcome barriers, that's a growth mindset, motherfuckers. And so, yeah, you've come to the right place. Yeah. We all want more sex, but not just any old sex. We want good sex. We want more intimacy. We want to feel sexy and we want to feel great about sex. And and honestly, like I if if anybody was like, who are the sex experts that you know, I would say Ron and Liz. Mm, Wait, no, uh-oh. no, I wouldn't. <laughs> I would no, not. I would not. That is not, not what I would say. But <laughs> luckily. We do know someone that's an expert, and not just any old expert, but a really fucking badass one. Um, How about a former sex crimes deputy district attorney turned women's intimacy expert known for infectious energy, refreshing candor, straightforward approach, someone who's taught hundreds of women how to love their bodies, create more intimate relationships, and have great sex shame-free. She's a certified coach, educator, and speaker with a mission to reclaim the term shameless as a badge of honor. Last year, gave a TEDx talk on the truth about sexual shame and has also spoken in front of audiences internationally. Also, one of my good friends, fantastic human, Rena Martin. Yay! Oh, hello. And I guess, and, and author. I'm just going to plug myself for a second. Yeah. That was what I was going to also say. And we missed this part. But when sex, when she was like, we want to have good sex, I was like, or dare we say the sex you want? Yes. Yes. The sex we want. That is the phenomenal book written by Raina as well. So, yes, author as well. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Welcome, Raina. I loved your book. It's fantastic. (laughs) I I told Rena too the other day that I and I've said this before too I suck at reading books. Um it's something that I'm working on and I read your book cover to cover and am so fucking impressed but not only that it's it's I think speaks largely to how awesome that book was because I was so ex- I'm excited for Gwen to read it. I kept asking Liz. I'm like, "Do you read it yet? This is amazing." Um, so good. So yeah, really good. Well, I'm excited to hear what what your big takeaways were, and especially ones that you think are going to be beneficial to the populations you serve here in the work you do, and chat more about that today. Liz, do you have any clients that speak to you specifically about sex or in the past have? Yeah. Um, 
sex is something that often comes up in my conversations with clients, but usually after we've known each other for a while and it's sort of hanging around there in the background, but it can be a force in their life that extends well beyond the bedroom. You know, the the shame that they carry around about sex, um, feelings of rejection, um, fear of intimacy. Um, it's not just about what happens or doesn't happen in bed. It can it can really permeate every area of life. Yeah. I, I have a question for you, Rena. So you went from sex crimes DA not long ago, right? Like this was a couple years ago, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, it was about three years ago. Okay, yeah. so three years ago, persecuting sex crimes as a DA, and then what, just a quick right turn into like a sex party. That's how you make that jump, isn't it? It's just, <laughs> and then like career path change. Um, yeah. What, what happened? All right. So I'll, I'll take I'll take the very long story and give you like the, the less long version of it. But um, so I was a prosecutor for 14 years with the L.A. County DA's office and spent about a decade of, of that 14 years prosecuting sex crimes, child abuse and domestic violence cases. And those are the kinds of cases I wanted to prosecute. That, so I, I landed my dream job, essentially. And about a decade in, I was like, you know, this system isn't working the way it's supposed to. And I felt like a cog in the machine. And I um, ended up transferring out of, of those kinds of units and cases and just kind of prosecuting generic crimes within the DA's office because we have lots of crimes to prosecute and there's a special unit for everything. But then the job itself became just that a job. It wasn't a calling anymore. It was, you know, clock in, clock out, great benefits, you know, pension waiting for me on the other side of retirement, which very few workers can say that about their jobs these days. But I'd fallen out of love with it. And simultaneously, I had fallen out of love with what I thought I wanted in my personal life too, which was the white picket fence of conventional monogamy. Um, I thought there was something really wrong with me that I couldn't just feel happy and grateful for this life that so many other people would want, you know, the life that we're told we're supposed to want. And so I, I dropped a bomb in my personal life and, and ended my marriage, started working through my own issues surrounding that because that is shame, right? Like what's wrong with me and was reading the books and listening to the podcast and going to therapy and doing all this work on my own. And I thought to myself, you know, I wish there were a way that I could give this to women, what it's taken me years to do on my own. And I wondered if perhaps going back to school to become a therapist would be the way to do that because I'd seen how much my therapist changed my own life. Um, and then the pandemic hit. And uh, after I had baked all the bread and binged all the TV, I was like, okay, so is there a way I could start working with people now? Um, short of going back to grad school and accruing a lot more student loan debt, you know, I've already been through law school. Um, yeah. Is there a way that I could start working with clients one on one short of becoming a therapist? And I got a coaching certification um, and started working with clients. And I then realized I'm a much better coach than I would have made a therapist. And it was absolutely life changing to see what an impact you can have in people's lives in a short period of time by simply giving them the right tools and the right guidance instead of just talking about things, you know, for an hour every week, but saying, hey, go out and do this. And um, helping trauma survivors, helping people who 
had, uh, you know, over decades wound up in sexless marriages, like just the whole gamut of people who I've been able to support has been really just the, the most incredible calling that I could have ever imagined. And so that's, that's what brought me to where I am now. Did you have like, so sure, that was probably a very long story shortened into like, here are the bullet points. Do you, I know a lot of people talk about like a moment. I know not in my sex life, but maybe in my career. I remember a moment when a lot of things led up to it and a lot of things had to happen after, but that was like a shift for me. Do you have like a moment that you look back on and you're like, that was my fucking moment? Oh yeah, I do. And, and, uh, I'm excited to share this with you because the moment involves Dan, who is my primary partner, who, you know, and that is how I know you, Ron, um, Dan and, he and I were sitting in my then backyard when I lived in Franklin Hills, so near Silver Lake, and I had just been transferred to a very elite unit within the DA's office that goes after bad law enforcement. So bad cops, um, you know, officer-involved shootings, all of that kind of stuff. And, and I was telling Dan, you know, okay, well, I, I landed the job that I wanted in this unit, but I'm just, I'm not loving it. Like, it's just not really for me. And... He's like, well, why do other people want to be in this unit? So, well, other people want to be in this unit. Like, why is it so elite, right? Well, they want to be in this unit because it's a good stepping stone if you want to become a judge or if you want to be in upper management at the DA's office. And then Dan was just like, without missing a beat, asked me, well, do you want to be a judge? Do you want to be in upper management at the DA's office? It's like, no, I don't want either of those things. Fuck that shit. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. And like that, that was the moment. It was after that question that I was like, you're right. Why am I in this grind and in this rat race for this reward that I don't even want? And that's yeah. when I started seriously looking at what it would take for me to go back to school part-time to become a therapist and kind of work as a, as a DA yeah. for maybe another decade. And then I would essentially retire from the county and just slide right into a brand new career. And that was my plan. But, but really that, that question is what got me thinking about life beyond the nine to five. Wow. And isn't it funny how like sometimes the simplest, most obvious questions are the ones that just go right over our heads. Oh, yeah. It takes somebody who really knows you well to ask the most direct, simple, obvious question. Yeah. Oh, it's so true. And another question that I'll share just because it's funny is my first coach who I ever hired I was giving her every excuse in the book as to why I couldn't just quit my job as a DA and, and go out as a as a women's intimacy coach. And she's like, all right, well, tell me why you can't leave your job as a DA. I said, well, I've got really good insurance. Like, so I'm telling her about this stuff. Yeah. And she says, you know, Rena, you know you're allowed to buy your own goddamn insurance, right? <laughs> That's good. Yeah. And it's like, I hadn't even thought of that. Like, oh yes, there are people all the time who go out and buy their own health insurance, but I was like, and, and just these very obvious questions, um, that end up being watershed moments in your life. Wow. Well, I know even that story I know will be really inspiring to a lot of our listeners because especially people with ADHD, we're really hung up on this idea of what's the right thing. You know, there's this conventional path that we should so many shoulds, right? That we that just go unquestioned, and we people put so much focus into um, how can I make all these shoulds happen? Because there must be something wrong with me if they're not working yeah. for me, right? Yeah. But to go, I can have a, I can start again and again and again. So inspiring. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I mean, should I, I always say that should and shame are bedfellows, right? Like whenever I hear somebody use a should in a sentence and, and I am the annoying person who will stop them and be like, okay, let's unpack that. Let's unpack that should there. And we start peeling back the layer of the onion is, is the should ah. is typically masking some sort of shame underneath that, right? Like I should eat healthier. I should, you know, go to bed earlier, which is basically meaning there's something wrong with me that I can't do this thing that seems to be coming easily to everyone else. And that's what shame is, really. Yeah. I would say you're, well, you're shitting all over yourself. Yeah, stop shitting all over yourself. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Well, I think that might be a great place to start, right? How how do you see in your work shoulds and shames show up for people in their relationship with sex? Oh, gosh. When I'm asked, uh, you know, where where does shame come from when we're talking about sex? I was like, where doesn't it come from? <laughs> Literally, yeah. it comes from religion. I mean, that's a big one, right? It comes from oftentimes our families of origin. It comes from what we see depicted in porn and unrealistic depictions of body types and performance. It can also come from you know, the messaging we get from our communities and our friends about what we're supposed to do. I was actually on a podcast the other day and um, one of the hosts said to me, oh my gosh, I realized that I kind of accidentally body shamed a close friend of mine because I was telling her like, well, hey girl, if you haven't figured out how to squirt yet, then you know, you're missing out on the good stuff. And she's like, and I, and it was coming from a good place, but I realized like, wait, I'm, I'm shaming her for how her body works or doesn't work or function right in this way. So there's shame from, you know, think about sex education. We It's comprehensive. And even if we're getting the comprehensive kind that is clinically accurate, they're not teaching us about pleasure. They're just teaching us how to not get pregnant and how to avoid disease. So it's coming from everywhere. And, and I like to say that, you know, death and sex are these two topics that we struggle to talk about. And it makes sense why we don't like talking about death because we are hardwired to fear our own mortality, right? Yeah. But with sex, like we're hardwired to want to have sex. The The future of humanity, right, depends on us procreating. Yet why is it that we have a hard time talking about this thing that we're all either doing, want to be doing, or have done? And it's because no one really has an incentive to give us the tools to do this properly, uh, which is why there's literally an entire chapter in my book called Talk About It. And, and I'm sure you've both seen, I give you a lot of ways to talk about sex in the book, but like one specific chapter is here are the building blocks for you to start having conversations about sex. Here are the apps you can use to open up these conversations with a partner. This isn't supposed to come easy. So if you have struggled to have these conversations, there isn't anything wrong with you. It's just no one's given you the tools to do it. So yeah. yes, long answer to your question, shame and sex, it's coming from everywhere. Yeah. It's coming from everywhere. You're talking a little bit about like having, because communication, I think for ADHDers is really hard, but what's even harder, and this is for anything, we really struggle with identity. And I think mostly I've had like a theory on this, but I think we struggle with identity because of how I think our culture ties identity to the things that we like or the things we do or our jobs. And for an ADHD, that changes a lot. And so knowing what we want or what we like is even a bigger problem than communicating it. It's almost like, okay, I want sex, but what does that mean? 
right? Like, what is it specifically that you want? How do you want to be loved? Or So what I'm asking you is how can someone, ADHD or not, but ADHD, how can they kind of figure out what they want? What's like the first step of that? Because that seems like a gigantic mountain and can be really scary mm-hmm. for a lot of people. So how, how would you start something like that? Sure. Um, so I would actually start by giving an exercise, and this is something I do often, um, like in workshops and stuff that I mm-hmm. give, is thinking about your ideal meal, okay? And I want you to go through the 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 W's, who, what, where, when, why, right, and how, and think about, all right, if I were to, to design my perfect meal, where would it be? What would I be eating? Who would be there with me, right? What would the surroundings be like? So we could be, we don't have a hard time often discussing pleasure in the form of food. So going through that and and really taking the time to like write this down. And then typically if I'm doing this in a workshop, I will have somebody then tell a stranger or something they, they didn't come with and describe that ideal meal and have the stranger, you know, the other partner get curious and ask questions like, oh, so you know, what's the temperature like out while you're having your al fresco meal? So just getting curious, right? So fostering curiosity, giving people space to imagine and to like concoct what their ideal meal is because we all have different ones. And then after that exercise is over, what I tell folks to do is, all right, all the work you just did coming out with your ideal meal, I want you to sit down and write down what the sex version of that would be for you. You're not going to have to go tell a stranger about it, but we've already worked this muscle a little bit, right? Yeah. Go through who's there. Why, why, why do I like this? Um, paint the picture, color in some details there. So if you've never done this before, it might feel a bit daunting, which isn't why, which is why I don't just tell people like sit down and write out every sexual thing you want to do. But what you've already done by this point is you have fantasized about food. You have fantasized about a meal and a sexual fantasy is literally anything we think about while we're awake that turns us on. And so you're taking a skill that you've just learned how to do with food and you are coming up with a sexual fantasy there and you're writing it out. That's one way of doing it. Um, There's apps I recommend for folks that kind of get you thinking about things that you might have never thought about. Like Spicer is a good one. It sends you a prompt every day. Like, would you ever do? Yeah. (laughs) Right. And you and and your, your partner can each download it. Um, or you could download it on your own and just get a feel for, okay, yeah, would I ever uh, go shopping for sex toys together? Or would I ever have a threesome? Like it's going to send you questions. But ultimately giving yourself permission to not have all the answers yet, because it'd be pretty boring if, if I said, oh yeah, I've tried everything sexually at this point, nothing left to explore. Like, no, we don't want that. We want to foster curiosity. We want you to keep this kind of beginner's mindset when it comes to sex, because sex is a form of play. You might have your favorite board games that you like to play all the time, but it's exciting to get a new one in the mail, right? So so just rethinking how we view sex itself, what these conversations are like, that you know we can talk about sex more akin to food than to death, right? Just seeing this as this, as this thing that brings us pleasure, but that we have unique cravings about because the kind of sex you crave, Ron, is going to be different than what Liz craves and what Gwen craves and what I crave. And so knowing that no one else is going to have that answer for you, this is your unique kind of sexual blueprint. And it's up to you to give yourself permission to, to think about it and to write it down. 
Love it. Love that. that. Love that. Giving permission. I, I say that. That was my like, I don't really like have a New Year's resolution and it wasn't this, but last year was kind of like my intention, so to speak, of like giving myself permission. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it's, I've always thought it's a millennial thing where like as a millennial that we always feel like we have to have permission to do shit. Uh, or maybe it's just everybody, but I know at least me. Yeah. And I, I finally was just like, no, I can do this. And like yeah. letting or giving myself permission to do that. So that's really great. It makes me think so much of bridges and barriers when I'm coaching. Like, does somebody have a barrier they need to get around? Or does somebody need a bridge that they need to get there? And doing the food thing feels like it helps take a barrier down, which is just the idea of when sex comes, we just like can shut down or have shame and like all that shit kind of happens. And so that allows it to take down. And I love that. And actually thinking about it, often when people talk about sex, they kind of use food metaphors, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like about, you know, being hungry for it or craving something or, you know, Mm -hmm. a lot of the sort of sensual kind of language that we use about sex, we use about food as well. Absolutely. And I use food so much in in the work I do uh, as a sex educator and, you know, how how I relay information on the socials and stuff because people understand food. And yeah. it's it's sometimes and also it's, I'm a former trial attorney and talking to juries, you would have to use a lot of analogies to take complex right. legal concepts and say, okay, so think of it like this. So I just happen to be the person who takes the complicated sex concepts and turns them into food <laughs> analogies and then and then delivers them out into the world. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, well, you know, all I'm thinking is like cucumbers and carrots and eggplants, but I'm sure you're more creative than me. I, I, have, I have a bit of a weird question for you, Rena. When I tell people that I'm an ADHD coach, they kind of assume that like I would be so all over ADHD that my life would be ADHD free. Like I've really got my shit together. I, I feel like if I was a sex coach, people would expect me to be really good at sex all the time. Like, like, what if you just feel like starfishing and like not doing anything cool? I don't know. Is, is that a thing? Do you feel that pressure? Oh, interesting. <laughs> so that people must assume that I'm like porn star, like yeah. uh, Olympic black belt, wins, black belt <laughs> winning. <sex>. I, <laughs> yeah. No, no. I, I mean, I can be a real good pillow princess for sure. Um, <laughs> no, like, and I think for me, Part of what I what I do in my book is I I own up to hey this is me trying this for the first time right or this is what I've learned and here are the mistakes I've made and I'm pretty transparent in my journey and the new things I continue to do and try and saying you know like hey that's not totally my thing but I tried it or ooh I'm really curious to do a bit more of that I am just as awkward as the next person in the bedroom. So don't think that I have some, yeah, some, some beast when it comes to that, except I'm just not scared to try new things um, for fear yeah. that, oh, I'm not going to be good at this. I'm like, yeah, let's, let's give this a go. Right. That's awesome. And when I think about it, like um, for me, the best sex is when it's fun, like when it's playful and you're laughing and, you know, it, it can be clumsy, but doesn't take away from it at all. It's being having that fun, being comfortable, having fun together and willing to explore each other. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, I'm such a big fan of seeing play as, or seeing sex as play and as fun. And and I always 
remind, remind folks, you know, sex is one of life's greatest joys. It's absolutely free. And it's one of the few ways we get to play as adults and to really use our imagination in that way. And I know for some folks, trauma survivors, of course, like sex itself can be shrouded in so much pain, but there's also a way to use sex therapeutically too, which is one thing I love helping clients through um, who are trauma survivors and, you know, incorporating some BDSM and DS play into their life to allow them to feel in control. There's so much beautiful healing that can be done when it comes to sex. Even if sex was the thing that hurt you in the first place, it can be the thing that heals you too. And if you're in partnership and you know you and your partner are doing new things together sexually and and hungry and curious to like you know, the, the, the sex equivalent of what recipe do we want to try this week? Right. Or, Hey, like there's a new restaurant in town. Like, when are we going to go there and, and, uh, and see what's on the menu. If you can approach sex from the same place of wonder and curiosity, this becomes another way that you connect rather than just a mechanical thing that you two are doing. So, yeah. I have a question. Um, I'm like, excuse me, teacher. Um, <laughs> Are you, are you I know good at what, sex? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, so I, I know what BDSM is, but then you said DS. And so this is kind of a two-parter. I don't know. Is it DS, did you say? Or I think yeah. you said. And so what is that? And if you could explain BDSM to the audience, because maybe not everybody fully understands it, minus sure. the Rihanna song. And I think that might be like what they know it from. Yeah. All right. So BDSM, you know, the most popular, I'm going to say popular, not accurate, most popular mm -hmm. depiction of BDSM would be, you know, what you read or watched in Fifty Shades of Grey. I will not go on a tangent. But considering that was the uh, best-selling book of the last decade, most of us probably know what I'm talking about when I say Fifty Shades of Grey. So within BDSM, though, what do these letters stand for? The B is bondage. So yes, bondage can be you are being chained up or you are being tied down. But bondage can also be like the cheap, fuzzy handcuffs you got from the, I don't know, local kind of <laughs> skeezy sex shop in your town. Uh, bondage could also be you have a handkerchief around your eyes and you're restricting one of your senses. It's just anything that's restricting your movement at all. That's bondage. This doesn't need to be totally scary, right? So the D can stand for discipline, right? So wanting to be disciplined uh, when you do something wrong. And that's typically done by your dom, your dominant. So that's another uh, form of the D that we have there. The S can stand for both sadism. Sadism is um, somebody who enjoys inflicting pain. So Marquis de Sade was famously, you know, for he, he liked to inflict pain on people. And so sadist and sadism is somebody who gets sexual fulfillment from inflicting pain. Again, this doesn't need to be intense. This can be like, yeah, I like slapping my girlfriend in the butt during sex and she likes it too. Well, what does that make her? That would make her a masochist, right? Which is what that other M stands for there. So uh, when I say DS play, what I'm talking about is one person assumes the role of dom and the other person is assuming the role of sub. Um, and so that's just kind of a subset. But there are types of 
of uh, kink and, and BDSM play that involve no pain whatsoever. So I think that's another common misconception. Like, oh, I'm not into the pain part, so this isn't for me. No, I hear so many women who tell me like, oh, I just want my partner to come in and make the decisions for me in the bedroom. Yeah. Oh, and it's precisely shit, yeah. Be- yeah. because they're like <laughs> making <Where's-> s- <laughs> yes. uh, no more decisions. Yeah, go on. Yeah, <laughs> that what you are describing is is that you're craving an element of DS where you are the submissive and someone else is taking charge in the bedroom. So this mm-hmm. doesn't need to be whips and chains and pain and all these crazy things. This can literally just be a very gentle power differential there. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I love that. I. Just thinking about, I know that well, there's plenty of research to support that people with ADHD um, are more likely to be addicted to porn, to spend a disproportionate amount of their time from a younger age um, watching porn. What, what are your thoughts on porn and, and how it can be or can't be a, a part of a healthy, a shameless approach to yeah. sex? Great question. Um, I have an entire chapter in my book called Make Porn Your Friends because there are entire books out there written about the perils of porn and how terrible porn is. And I like to say that porn is a tool, right? So yes, porn can be used for bad, but it can be an incredibly powerful good tool too. So saying porn is evil is like saying knives are evil because they kill people because knives, you know, we can also use knives to to cook beautiful meals and stuff. So it's not that the porn itself is inherently good or bad. It's how we're using it um, and how it's being made. So if we're talking about mainstream porn, there can be some problems there. We don't know if it's being produced ethically, right? Um, If we're looking at the universe of ethical porn, which there's so much out there now, and I, I give a bunch of sites in that chapter in my book to direct people toward based on what you're looking for, you can watch this knowing that these actors, they all want to be here. They're excited yeah. to be here. Um, you can see people who look more like you than the type of, you know, massively penis, uh, gravity-defying, breasted women that you see in conventional porn. You can see people of different sizes and ages and abilities and gender expressions. So in that way, porn can be really healing. For some people, if you're somebody who was raised to believe like, well, because of the way I look, I'm not allowed to be sexy. And you go and you're able to find videos of people who actually look like you enjoying themselves. That can undo wow. a lot of damage. If you are, say, a, a teenager and you're questioning your own gender identity and you live in a small, rural, conservative part of the country, this might be the place where you can actually see people who look like you, right? So... um this can also be a way to discover things that you're curious to try. Like I've had clients say, hey, I was watching this porn the other day and one of the actors was using a toy that looked like, you know, X. And what is that? And where can I find one? And then because, you know, I'm sorry, but most uh, sex toy websites like retailers, they're not going to have an action shot of this toy being used. Right. Yeah. So you can Google just... image search it and like hook it up to the yeah. store. That would be a great website. Just a Google image yeah. search of sex yeah. toys used right. in porn. And oh, brilliant. Right. Yeah. 
but it can be a fantastic way to be like, ooh, that's kind of fun. So part of the work I do with my clients um, when I work with women one-on-one is assigning them, okay, I want you to go on this specific porn site as an ethically made porn site. And I want you to spend a half an hour just kind of like scrolling through stuff that you might not normally watch and take notes about what resonates with you and what doesn't. Because if you're just watching the same thing over and over and over again, you're not giving yourself an opportunity to explore. It's like going to the same restaurant week after week after week, right? Yeah. So mm. I think porn can be such an incredibly valuable tool if used correctly. If not, if it's not being used as a substitute for comprehensive sex ed, which it is not a substitute for comprehensive sex ed. Uh, the sad reality, though, is that because a lot of kids aren't getting comprehensive sex ed and they want it so badly they are turning to porn but i'm i'm hoping the tide will begin to to turn when it comes to that but um yeah, yeah. yeah. porn was never meant to be sex ed that's the problem that we have here right. i have okay sure it i guess this is coming from me so this is a me question about stuff that i deal with and i think a lot of adhders relate to but Fucking rejection. Um, mm. I notice there's certain things that my brain wants to avoid, like the plague, and that would be rejection. So perceived rejection, the fear of rejection. Yeah. Um, in long-term relationships, whether that is society telling us that's what happens or that just ends up what happens, but in marriages or long-term relationships, um, sex has been told to us that it it gets less and less and there ends up being this fear around initiating sex and it being more rejection than not and then it turns into this like i don't know uh i'm aware of it and i still end up finding myself not doing it as much like so not initiating as much as i used to even though i do want it yeah. Is that something you see in clients or is that an ADHD thing? <laughs> no, that, Does that, that make is, sense? Did it, I get it makes, there? It makes complete sense. Um, okay. and if you wanted to go down a bit of a rabbit hole about this, there's a book called Not Always in the Mood by Sarah Hunter Murray that is, mm-hmm. is also very good. Um, oh, thank and this you. Is, yes. Yeah, you're welcome. I, I, I will just throw books your way. But um, yeah. To add, before, before you answer, I do want to say that there's like this. So um, – and I, I've asked her, I'm like, can I talk about this? So yes, me and Gwen <laughs> um, actually went to couples counseling over things like that. And not just this, but it was my fear of communicating that I'm struggling with rejection because there was like shame around that. Mm-hmm. And talking it out, um, realizing that it wasn't just because then you have the resentment thing. Uh, realizing like, okay, this is something that I can work on my communication and and whatnot. But it feels like I've been kind of stuck in a loop almost. And I Mm -hmm. think I've, you know, even when we know like, okay, this is what I have to do. It's almost like I've started to create this like, well, it's going to be forever before we have sex again. So I'm not even going to try still even knowing, but now I'm not even resentful now I'm mad at myself because I like know the answer. 
Mm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I think I'm hearing you. And, and I look, feel like I I'm think... like talking in circles about this because I'm like, no. oh, I'm being vulnerable and it feels weird. No, but, yeah. no, no. And so, I mean, obviously rejection hurts everyone and folks with ADHD are particularly sensitive right. to it because of RSD. Um, and just generally speaking, rejection lights up the same part of your brain as, as physical pain. Like we are designed mm-hmm. to avoid it because back in the day as hunters and gatherers, if we were rejected from our clan, we could die. And so rejection is supposed to hurt in the brain. Well, that's fucking helpful considering that rejection <laughs> is like a part of you Everywhere. know dating and relationships yeah. and, and sex. Um, and there's really no way that you can ever fully avoid rejection. but in situations where one partner is constantly making bids for initiation and constantly being turned down, what the data tells us as far as the trends, what will typically happen is the initiating partner will then spend less effort initiating over time. Not that they won't do it as much, but the initiation will be just kind of sloppy because they're like, well, hey, she's turned me down 10 times in a row. Why am I going to like cook dinner and get flowers and stuff, right? Yeah. It's it's like uh, the law of diminishing returns. Like, okay. Yeah. So, and yeah. then what happens is, and I'm, I'm using a very heteronormative example here. No, you've what, been watching me. It's fine. We get it. <laughs> no. No, I'm using a very heteronormative example. Yeah, yeah that's right. That because this be, is yeah. kind of what comes up commonly is okay, you know, my wife has turned me down this many times. So therefore, like, what's the point in me trying to put in a lot of effort? And then, you know, the question on her side then becomes like, or or her explanation is, well, how do you expect me to get in the mood when all you're doing is just like, you know, rolling me over and like, waking me up, like pressed up against my butt, like I need some foreplay and I need this. And so somehow we've both ended up in this situation where because the rejection wasn't handled appropriately as it was going on, there's resentment on both sides here. Mm. So what the data tells us is that it's it's less about that you're rejecting and how you do it. Because sometimes men will be making a bid for sex, but it's not about the sex itself. It's about the closeness. Mm-hmm. So if you are on the receiving end and your partner is like, I want, I want sex. And you're like, I don't want sex. Um, you would say, I'm not in the mood for that right now. Offer a, an alternative. Hey, not right now, but maybe, um, after we put the kids to bed tomorrow or, you know, but like actually offer an alternative and then offer to cuddle instead or some other form of physical affection that you are comfortable with. So that's just a nice, and it's not going to fix every problem, but that, right. But that's, that's a nice way of doing it. Sometimes, though, is with initiation, I think people can feel awkward. Like, I don't know how I'm supposed to be doing this. Like, am I supposed to be like totally seducing? Like, (laughs) what does this look like? Um, And the reality is that most most women, most of us have responsive desire as opposed to spontaneous desire, meaning Mm. something needs to get us in the mood. We don't just like walk around being in the mood. Which is cool because if you schedule sex, you're going to be a hell of a lot more likely to have a female partner who has done the work to get herself mentally prepared to be in the mood than if you just try to like out of nowhere, like come up behind her and like, hey, baby, let's go. And she's like, what are you talking about? Like, who are you? Like, what's happening here? (laughs) So, I mean, I'm a big fan of scheduled sex. There's a 
chapter in my book called Schedule It because I believe yeah. that that people need to be scheduling it, especially because we as women um, have that responsive as opposed to spontaneous desire. So uh, is that answering your questions, Ron? Because yes. you know, I could just keep yeah. talking. <laughs> yeah. No, it does. Um, there's so many factors, right? And I think that's, and what was really good to hear is that it's, it's, it is a little bit, and again, heteronormative, but how we tend to see, and I don't know if it is social influences, right, that make it heteronormative, but it feels like I fall into like the heteronormative thing. Um, there's also something interesting with, I've read a lot about with ADHDers and hypersexuality and hyposexuality. And mm-hmm. just like everything, it feels like ADHD is all or nothing, right? And And so there's this like we're either going pedal to metal 100 miles an hour or we don't want to pull the car out of the driveway. And mm-hmm. those things can change not just from person to person, but within a person. Mm-hmm. And that can be tricky too. And I think when you're in a relationship with an adhd you may have someone where you're like, wow, they want to have sex all the time and then it just stops. Or it's like, now they don't want to have sex at all or and vice versa. Yeah. And that adds to shame and rejection. Do you have any clients that deal with that? I know a lot of what I took from your book was, um, and we had this chat a little bit on Instagram, but there's so much about removing the shame, getting to know yourself, a lot of inward thinking, reflection, um, removing masks, being authentic. Do you ever deal with people who are just like, yeah, either hypersexual and hyposexual, things like that? and, And do they have problems with that? Yeah, I definitely deal with people who would qualify as quote unquote, big quote, dysfunctional when it comes to sex because of either difficulty reaching orgasm or um, or low sex drive or libido. Mm-hmm. Huge thing. It's tricky because when people are saying, you know, I'm just never in the mood for sex, there could be a lot of things going on. But normally, when we start digging a, b- a bit deeper, it's that the sex that's on offer isn't actually the kind of sex they're craving. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then, and I think if we're talking about ADHD folks, like how can somebody go from being hypersexual to hyposexual? It could be that perhaps that novelty isn't being prioritized in the bedroom. Mm-hmm. The things that get you excited and that help you flourish in your neuro um, atypical life outside the bedroom, you know, novelty, um, like rewards, dopamine, like, yeah, right. For sure. Like there are ways that you can bring that into the bedroom so that you don't have that kind of burnout. And I suggest this to, to everyone because look, your mind's going to wander if you take the same route to drive to work every day. Right. Or if you're watching the same commercial on TV for like the 50th time, your mind is going to wander during sex. If you're doing it in the same well-worn positions that you already know, um, and you're not even going to crave sex in the first place if it's the 7-Eleven ham sandwich equivalent of a meal as opposed to like your favorite meal, right? The one that you actually mm. crave. So part of of figuring out what's going on here is knowing what it is you crave. And we kind of talked about that exercise earlier on in, in our discussion today. And then starting to introduce some new steps and some variety into that. Because yeah, sex is not a set it and forget it. Like two people meet, they have insane sexual chemistry, and then the rest is just going to do itself. No, like it's, it's, it takes effort. And in the same way that, you know, you're about to have a kid, Ron, Liz, you're, you're a mom. Mm -hmm. 
parents aren't supposed to just like leave their kids with the iPad all the time because that's kind of like there's a time and a place for it. But that could be seen as lazy parenting. Like you're going to want to like come up with new and fun things to do with your kids. Your sex life is no different. You know, what you water will grow. So that's what I would say is, you know, for folks who have ADHD, y'all are really great at coming up with new ideas and like novelty, right? Take some of that and bring it into the bedroom because, you know, not, well, I'm not going to say anything that I haven't already said on podcasts before. My partner who has ADHD, he has managed to figure out a way to use that to his advantage in so many creative and fun ways in the bedroom. So it's out there for you, for the taking. (laughs) Amazing. Amazing. Um. Rena, I really appreciated in your book that you were so open about your history with with trauma and how that's you know affected your stories about sex over the years. Um, yeah. I know that you know for me and a lot of my friends and a lot of my female clients as well, a lot of us have had some uh, borderline or well over the line. Uh, sexual experiences um, that maybe we discounted or we made them our fault in some way. Um, And it really changes the way that think about sex and sex becomes this thing that you do to please men, to keep men happy. How do you deal with that in your practice? Yeah. And, you know, there's so many different types of sexual traumas and different ways that people respond to those. And you said it will impact sex for you if you've survived something that was a bit beyond the pale of what's allowed. But it it also impacts just the way you view the world and your ability to trust people, Mm -hmm. right? Because that's that's an even bigger trauma and deception there. Like this person, because typically it's someone we know when we're talking about uh, intimate partner violence or, or, or sexual trauma, it's usually someone we know. And so that doesn't just completely destroy you when it comes to sex. It, it can completely cause a person to question their own sense of intuition. It can cause people to question like, well, how did I get myself in this position, right? So it's almost like you abandon yourself too in the process. I've seen um, trauma survivors react in different ways. Some will go from okay, this thing happened to me too. I'm going to avoid intimacy altogether. Some will go in the complete opposite direction of sexual promiscuity. There's no one right way to look as a trauma survivor. And I think that's really important for allies to understand too, that do not assume that you know better about what a person needs than they do, what a survivor needs. Um, So how do I see this coming up in my practice? I see it coming up as, yeah, women who will avoid any sort of sexual contact at all or certain acts themselves. Like this particular kind of sex act was used abusively on me as as a child or in my abusive marriage. And so I want to avoid that sex act at all costs. And that's what we think. Like, okay, we just avoid the trigger so that we don't go into that trauma response. And the reality is this. The only way to get over your trauma is is through action, and it's not through thinking it, because the thoughts didn't cause the trauma. A trauma is an event or series of events, and you therefore need to introduce new events to rewrite the trauma. So an example would be, hey, I don't like my stomach being touched. 
because my cousin abused me when I was a child and that was a part of my body that he would do stuff to. And um, I'm, I'm not comfortable having my stomach touched, right? When she and I worked together, what I had her do was go through self-guided touch where it was just her touching her own stomach. And she created a practice around that. And instead of, yeah, she could have kept dating for the rest of her life and told people, don't touch my stomach. But that's, that's ignoring the pile of the, of the clothes on the bed instead of folding them and putting them away. You can't think, you can't think, that, yeah, yeah, you can't think the clothes yeah. away. We got piles but, everywhere, so. Yeah. <laughs> just just leave the memoir. pile there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so little piles what, everywhere. Little piles everywhere. Um, and, you know, trauma is so unique and triggers are going to vary person to person that I would be reckless to give your listeners a one, a one size fits all here. Um, but in my book, that's why I give so many different examples of how we had, you know, help this client work through it, this client work through it so that you can kind of see, okay, how do I take out the X factor that made this dangerous in the first place? So in the one example I just gave, you're taking the X factor out because it's you touching yourself and not someone else doing it, right? So you're restaging the event, you're introducing opposite action, you're doing the thing over again, but in a way where you are in complete control. And um, so that's one thing that, that I help my clients with is is restaging and really doing this fine tune with surgeon like precision because we don't want to you know re re traumatize a person but knowing how our brains work knowing that our brains really do want to put this trauma away um and and giving folks a very baby step approach to to healing past this because you are not broken i will tell you that you're not broken. Anything that happened in the moment was your body and brain's way of protecting you. A lot of people say, I can't believe I didn't fight back. I can't believe I didn't run, right? Well, typically in a sexual assault situation, fight and flight are not feasible options. And your brain has decided your greatest chance of survival in this scenario is to freeze, which is basically to play dead, or to fawn which is to say yes and go along with things. And that was what your brain decided in that moment, that that was, was going to give you the, the highest chances and highest likelihood of survival. So understand that your body and brain were, were working exactly as they're meant to. Um, and, and give yourself permission to let yourself off the hook for this and know that this was not your fault at all. Um, Raina, I, I, love, I love what you say so much. Um, and as you said, there are so many different types of trauma and how it can manifest to people in their lives well beyond the trauma. Um, but what I'm hearing there is just so much hope. Like I know that yeah. some people lose hope that they can have a satisfying sexual life um, after they've experienced trauma. Um, but yeah, if, if that speaks to you, get Rena's book because she really dives into it there. One thing to add to that too, I think so many ADHDers and I, I like I make content online. We have a podcast, um, and then we we all coach. All of us coach, and there are a lot of people that struggle and have a hard time asking for help. Yeah. Um. So they may take the smaller baby steps, which is also okay. Which is you know following different creators on on Instagram 
or buying someone's book about this, but like that, that is still a step in the right direction. Um, and, and yeah, asking for help is, is totally okay. So if, if you feel comfortable, yeah, reach out to Rena cause she's fucking awesome too. So, um, there's, there's her book, there's her content online. Uh, you can hire her as a coach. Um, do you have any, uh, learning programs too that you do? Or anything like that? As of right now, I do not. Um, okay. So I, I teach on a variety of platforms. <laughs> yes. Uh, but yeah. if, if people hop on my mailing list uh, or follow me on Insta, nice. they will find out. But um, I teach on a variety of wellness platforms. So there's one called Peanut. I'm usually on there twice a month uh, running pods nice. on there for, that are free to users. Um, and then occasionally coaches will have me come in and do these kind of guest group sessions for their clients. Um, but right now I don't have a self-paced learning program to guide people toward. We shall see what the rest of 2024 brings um, once book madness has died down a little bit over here. But yeah. Um, yeah. Well, the book is very comprehensive, right? And I, I'm pretty certain that there will be something in there that speaks to your specific situation whatever's happening for you i um, i want to add real quick too as as a man that read the book um it was so helpful for me not just as and this is kind of what i went into it thinking that oh i'll at least have better insight on maybe things for my wife or you know things for the women in my life and it was so helpful for me as a guy because a lot of I always say too with with anything that you just remove the content and it still like works. Yeah. And it wasn't even having to remove the content. Like there were so many things that I related to and even though it does have this, you know, uh female driven kind of um perspective on it, it's like 97% of it I could relate to in my own life and how it could be helpful for me. So yeah, it's it's super helpful for just about anyone. And, and even aside from just, if you're wondering about ADHD and sex, there was so many great things that you could replace the, the sex content of it for just struggling with keeping my life in order in mm -hmm. other areas too. So there were so many ways that I was just like, Oh shit, I'm going to take that. Um, that was really great. Um, so yeah, I really yeah. loved it. There was, one quick last thing, and I, 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 we've been talking for a while, and you're just fantastic, so super easy. But one of my favorite parts of the book was, and it was you talking with a client, I think. Um, I don't really recall. I take terrible notes. But you mentioned our need, like the need for external validation, and that is fucking an ADHD or to a T, right? Where it's we need some sort of proof that what we're doing is okay. And what's funny is Liz and I were talking about this and she was like, oh, the opposite. I don't want to hear that I'm sexy or smart. She's like, that makes me so uncomfortable. And we're like, oh yeah, the all or nothing thing again. But to me, I think we have such a hard time giving ourselves validation. I know as a coach, I do so much work with people on finding ways to get that dopamine from ourselves, right? Yeah. We do... I do this thing where it's like an elevator pitch to like, how do you, would you sell yourself to someone? And it's so mm -hmm. uncomfortable for people to talk positive about themselves. Yep. But if we work on that, like it's not even to give it to anybody else. It's to be able to say yourself like, Oh, I'm someone that leads with kindness that um, loves using creativity. 
wants to bring more curiosity to their lives, things like that. How does that work for finding yourself sexy? Because I think that's what it was. Like, if I remember the story, it was someone that was not feeling sexy or wanted someone else to have them feel sexy, but it was like, you kind of turned it around and said, like, how do you make yourself feel sexy and how that's different for each person? I think it was like, oh, going bra shopping, but realizing that, oh, I feel sexy when I have like an underwired bra compared to not that. That's my favorite part. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know, I think you touched on a few, a lot of different things here, which is that for me, never, I know, uh, <laughs> that, that we have a hard time. That's rat- a point, Ron. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> no, that we just generally speaking, a lot of us, whether it's because you're a woman, but whether it's because you have ADHD or whether it's just because you're a human, we have a hard time bragging about ourselves. I think particularly for women, we're like, Oh no, you're supposed to you're supposed to be really modest, right? And you're not supposed to brag up about your accomplishments, which is why I have my clients do a journaling practice that involves that includes brags in it, which is why I, you know, in this book I give you exercises where like you must write down 50 things that you love or admire about yourself. Um, but in terms of feeling sexy, it's it's as though we have never been trained or taught how to self-validate when it comes to that. It's like, okay, well, he, she, or they told me I'm sexy and therefore I feel sexy and I need that validation. So one thing I have clients do and readers as well is to take an erotic photo of yourself. This doesn't need to be totally explicit, but setting something up to where you are looking at yourself through an erotic gaze. This isn't a photo for you to send to anyone else. You can if you want to. But so many people either haven't done this or they're doing it for someone, right? And it's never for you. I also give a a challenge to readers, which is go through your underwear drawer right now and throw away any underwear you would not not want someone else to see you in. Because if it's not good enough for you, if it's not good enough for them, it sure as hell isn't good enough for you. And so really just starting from those those basic building blocks of like, you're not going to be in the mood for sex if you feel inherently unsexy. That's just period. So I don't know, like, do what you need to do. If that's like throwing on some lingerie, cool. If that's shaving your legs, cool. Every person's going to be unique. But if it's like me, where I'd be sitting around in my blue bathrobe knitting, it made no, it <laughs> it made complete sense why I I for many years of my life felt like a grandma and felt like very unsexy because I because I was behaving like one. I love that. Love that. And um, if you've got kids and you take a sexy photo, just be careful with the iCloud. It doesn't show up on the iPad. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> Uh, yeah. yeah, I have seen yeah. it happen. <laughs> I think I uh, think men can really pay attention to that too because it's something that many of us don't ever think about being sexy yeah. or dressing sexy um, for ourselves, especially. Man, that feels and sounds so weird. But here I am, after reading your book, throwing away a couple pairs of underwear that had holes in them because I'm like, whatever. But then I'm like, you know what? I want to look up what I'm wearing underwear. And so thank you for that. You're welcome. I'm like the crazy person who tends to wear coordinated bra and underwear all the time. And I I was not always this person, but now I've become that because I'm like, I don't even care if I'm not going to see another person today. I just, 
I feel good, like under my clothes, yeah. knowing, knowing that I'm coordinated, knowing that I put some care and attention into that. So yeah. I, I have a hard time throwing away even like older stuff because I'm afraid that I'm going to, because so often I run out of things to wear because I haven't done laundry in forever. Mm. This is more of an ADHD thing, right? And so I'm like, well, I'm going to the side of the drawer that has the underwear that I never wear because it's uncomfortable and I hate it or it's scratchy or it's not the right size or it has holes in it. And I'm like, whatever, I'll wear it now because it's all I have left. But if I just get rid of that, I'll be forced to to do laundry more or walk around naked. So there, there's that too. Or you, or you um, might have an opportunity to go shopping for like yeah, some fun new undies. Yeah, like, cool, I'm going to buy some new fun stuff. I like that. Yeah. Or Gwen, I, um, uh, can you buy me five new pairs of underwear? Yeah, um, there you go. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm such a, I'm such a like, it, like material is really important to me, but she knows that. We can make it happen. We can make it yeah. happen. One like of it. the um I, I had a mastectomy um a few years ago and this I got this great piece of advice from my breast care nurse at the time and that was to go out and buy some beautiful underwear, buy some beautiful bras. And it was just like the opposite of what you feel like doing, right? Yeah. But just to start connecting this new version of your body with something beautiful and sexy that you could be proud of. It sounds absolutely. You think that it's not going to work, but it really, it really helps. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, you know, changing your mindset around that. Uh, If I'm like ever struggling to get in the mood to do something, I just throw on some lingerie and I'm like, okay, good. We're good. Yeah. Yeah, Let's vacuum. Let's go. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Rena, I'm going to throw in the show notes um, where some of the places that you mentioned that people can find you. But could you please tell us now, what should people do if they want to find out more about you? Yeah, um, feel free to head on over to find me on Instagram. I'm at underscore rena.martine underscore. You can also head on over to my website, which is renamartine.com. Um, I believe by the time this episode comes out, you will be able to order my book. Uh, yeah. It comes out February 6th and it is available on all the platforms. Um, and the audiobook will be out February 27th uh, for you to purchase as well. So yeah, but shoot me a DM. I answer my own DMs on the socials, so be nice. But um, oh, always yeah. love hearing from people with any questions you've got. Uh, Rena, you're the best. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, a fantastic conversation, which I'm not surprised by. This was this was an, an easy be like, oh, yeah, we need to have Rena on. So yeah. thank you so much. Thanks thank for having you, me. And I just want you to like come and hang out with me and my friends. I want you to be my new best friend. You are just a breath of fresh air and gorgeous. Oh, yeah. I've never been to Australia. (laughs) You'll have to come. I would love to. I would love to. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Well, hey, everyone. Thank you for joining us. And uh, we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.